Brendan Leonard is an award-winning filmmaker, adventure writer, and the creator of Semirad.com. This is Brendan Leonard. I'm Duncan Gammy. You're listening to Dunk Tank. All right. I'm here with uh, Brendan Leonard. Uh, thank you for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, dude, so you, you've run like ultra marathons. You're a climber. You've biked across the country. Um, am I missing any like major anything major here uh i haven't i haven't been without a real job since i was 15 i guess uh, okay so yeah yeah i do i do work too yeah um, no no for sure yeah, no, I, I, I mean I'm joking. <laughs> yeah. like, of course uh and i and yeah. I, I do want to get into how you you manage that balance um but i it, it's just amazing the like these feats they seem especially for someone my age they seem so like almost unattainable. Um, and I think that's part of the reason why I really dug your book, uh, 60 meters to anywhere where you talk about, like, you were not that guy for, you know, the, the early part of your life. You, you were like, talk about that a little bit. You, you basically, you, you stopped drinking at what, like 22 or something like that or 20. 23. Yeah. Yep. And up to that point, um, you were having problems with that. And that, that was the impediment <laughs> to put it lightly, but yeah. that was, um, what was that period of your life? Like, how did you get out of that? Um, you know, I was ordered uh, by the state basically to go to rehab. So made it easy. It was like, you okay. can go to, you can go to rehab or you can go to jail for six months. And, yeah. um, so it, yeah, it was, um, definitely, I guess the most succinct way to put it is that, in addiction circles, I think there's a sort of saying that at first you have fun, then you have fun with problems and then you just have fun with problems. And I was well into the problems, um, section of, of my addiction. So it was good. Um, I think it felt unfair at the time to just have like a hard cutoff, be like, Hey, you can't do this anymore. You can't party anymore. Um, cause when you're 23, that's what you want to do. Um, and, looking back on it now it's been so long like um that i can't imagine it having it any other way it was basically a couple years of awkwardness and discomfort and then i just i don't i would not have time for most of the things i've done in life if i hadn't stopped doing that stuff so if that makes sense no no, absolutely so are you completely sober like will you drink coffee or um <laughs> that's funny milk. yeah no yeah i mean that's yeah basically um no not basically yes i'm totally i don't i don't i haven't done anything since like march 1st 2003 what date no 2002 so march 3rd 2002 okay. so yeah i drink uh, i drink a ton of coffee um and um i think there are people who can moderate i'm just not not really one of them. And I, you know, there are times where I'm like, ah, it's been, you know, 15 years or 12 years or whatever. And like, could I just have a beer? And I kind of think "Mm, probably not, you know, or could I, you know, and there's, there's lots of different ways to approach addiction now compared to when I um, was dealing with it, you know, and like uh, including use of, um, I believe, I believe like, uh, micro dosing, um, like psilocybin and things like that. Right. I, maybe, maybe not that specifically, but, um, small doses of psychedelics and other drugs like that. And, 
Um, you know, I, I think sometimes I go, God, I wonder if I could just like do mushrooms and be okay. And I think, and you can't even do like, you can't even moderate ice cream, you know, like (laughs) it just seems like maybe we just don't go down that road. Um, so yeah, every, everything is, and I, I am, I don't go in, I don't go in waves with coffee. I just drink like literally like seven or eight cups of coffee a day, um, which is a lot. And um, I've always just told myself that's my one vice, you know, um, How, but I'm that surprised is as someone as active as you, that that is, if you're running like an ultra marathon, you're drinking seven, eight cups of coffee a day. Like, I think uh, in the summer, it's a little less um, no. because it's, but right now I'm like, not, I'm not running that much. I'm just doing a 5k every day. And um, not that much. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, you think about it, if you're supposed to take 10,000 steps a day, like walking and right. You know, running, running 3.1 miles is like five or 6,000 steps. So it's not a ton. And I'm not, I'm not running fast either. You know, it's like, I'm not getting up at, 6am and busting out the door and running a really hard 3.1 miles. Some days it's just like, I will actually carry mail to a blue USPS mailbox. I'll run with mail, drop the mail off in the mailbox, run around for a while and come back to my house, you know? So it's, it's more of just like, I'm going to physically do this thing every day for, for as long as um, we'll see, we'll see how long it goes, I guess. I mean, it's still a 5k every day is, is well more than most people. Well, yeah, but I mean, we're not in America. We're not famous for being big exercisers in the last several decades. So, I mean, I, we interviewed a guy for a running podcast that I co-host, um, Eric, who's, he's a dad and an accountant in Minneapolis. And I had somehow, he had somehow messaged me on Twitter about what he had been doing. And I was like, wow, that's insane. Doing 3.1 miles a day for he did it for over a year, you know? And, uh, I was like, but he's, and he's got a lot more going on than I do, you know, with, with kids and everything. And I thought, well, this guy can make time for it. You know, maybe I can. So it was an interesting thing to just kind of be like, I wonder if I could do something every day besides check email and drink coffee, you know, like those are the things I definitely do every day. So, um, yeah, yeah. That's one of the, the making time part seems like the, the most daunting aspect in the beginning, but you think about it and maybe not the current or previous president, but most presidents would exercise for like half an hour, an hour in the morning. It's like, okay, mm-hmm. if the president has time to do that, I, I can go out for half an hour and exercise. Right. 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 I mean, I, it's really sad when you look at the screen time app on your phone and you're like, wow, I spent two and a half hours looking at my phone somehow yesterday. Yeah. Like, how can I not take 24 minutes or 28 minutes, 30, 35 minutes, including getting dressed, you know, for yeah. it and go for a run. So I don't know. It's just another experiment, I guess. Well, speaking of experiments then, I guess, so when you, you said um, just now that when you first got sober, you had like a couple like years of sort of like awkwardness, um, like readjusting to a, a basically a different body you know um and you talk about in your book that a lot of kind of what made you feel comfortable or, or brought you into like a new um you know metamorphosis let's say was climbing mm-hmm. and and that that might seem um bizarre to some people because climbing and you're you know like i i have had a fear of heights i climb but i'm 
that that is an uncomfortable position in and of itself. Yeah. You know? So how, how did that, um, how was that your ticket out of that, that uncomfortability? You know, I think, um, I guess looking back on it when you're like, I guess I was 25 and had gone to grad school and got a master's degree, but I feel like those, at least for me, I don't know if it's true for everybody at that age, but I feel like 25 to maybe even 30, you're not, I wasn't working jobs. I was that excited about, you know, you're like sort of low on the, on the totem pole, so to speak, you know, those sorts of jobs where you're an assistant or a coordinator or whatever. And I wasn't working for a company that people would like recognize, you know, and I I just felt like I, you know, I'd go to this job because it made me money, but it didn't feel like I wanted this to be a hundred percent my identity, you know, like, um, and climbing just felt like this thing that was, um, it was bigger than a hobby at that point. You know, it just grabbed me so, so fully and completely. And I just spent all my time outside of work, not all my time outside of work, but a lot of time outside of work thinking about it and researching it and trying to do it. And, um, it just seemed like this endless thing that you could just keep doing. And so it gave me an identity at the time, as opposed to, yeah, I work at, you know, if you, if you, if you and I were at a, you know, dinner party and you said, well, what do you do, Brennan? I didn't want to talk about my job. I didn't want to be like, well, Duncan, I work at this small chain of suburban weekly newspapers that no one reads and will be defunct in like four years. Um, and I don't like the work and I don't get to write about what I want to write about, but it's a paycheck. I would rather you say, what do you do in your spare time? And I was like, well, what I'm really excited about right now is rock climbing. And, yeah. you know, that would, that would light me up more. Um, and I, I've still only been to, I think I was at a party once in Boulder. Um, this is like, like 10 years ago when somebody said, what do you do? And I started telling them what I did and they go, no, like, what do you do? Like for any outdoors, do you like climb? Are you a cyclist or what? And I was like, the most bolder question ever but it was great you know we got right into it as opposed to like tell me about your job so that of course has changed now you know over the past I don't know decade or so I'm really excited about what I do for work so it's like um it's because I do my I do my own thing you know um I I do write and create things that I want to create so I think it was partly the the age I was where I was just kind of searching for something else um and not really you know, I wasn't like, had I been working at the New York times at age 26, I, I think I probably would have been pretty psyched about that and would tell people about that, but, right. and myself. Um, but yeah, it was just an identity for me. Um, and it became, uh, yeah, pretty all encompassing for, for quite a while. Well, that that's an interesting sort of feature. I think it's especially emphasized in America where that is a question that is like an icebreaker question. Like, what do you mm-hmm. do? And that, that isn't, it's not meant like, what are your hobbies? Like, Oh, do you, do you like, do you play clarinet? You know, all these is what is your job? And that mm-hmm. is your identity. Yeah. And sorry, go ahead. Oh no, it just, it makes sense. It's like what we spend most of our time doing. Right. It's like, including with average American commute is like, well, pre COVID is like 20 minutes each way. And then you, you work eight hours a day, but probably more like nine. So it's like 10 hours a day. And then beyond that, if you have kids, then you spend a lot of time, helping your kid, like raising your kids. So if you do have a hobby, it's like, oh yeah, I sneak away for 45 minutes every night and I try to play the harmonica or something. You know, it's like, it doesn't, 
it's not a big thing, but, you know, being that I was, you know, young and didn't have kids and didn't love my job, I was able to make, make that more, more of my, my time, I guess. Did, so I, I had talked to a guy, Ed Vesters, um, mm-hmm. on this podcast before, and he's, uh, for people who don't know, big climber. And he, um, he basically, he got super into climbing, kind of like what you're describing. And then he said, okay, I just want to make this my life and I want to figure out how to make it work financially. Um, when we talk about like you getting more and more into writing, uh, becoming like a filmmaker and all these things, were these, did they begin um, as like a means to an end of like, okay, this will be how I can orient my life around being in the outdoors or, or you see what I'm saying? How did that start? Yeah. Um, well, I was, I came to the University of Montana after um my after I did my undergraduate to get a master's degree in journalism and um I think at that time I was like oh the dream would be to you know write about music for like spin magazine or something like that I didn't really know and um I had to get published in a magazine to pass a magazine writing class and you think about that and I'm like well god how am I gonna get Rolling Stone or Time Magazine to publish my stuff and just totally blind to the fact there were all these small magazines out there and a classmate of mine said you should just write something for Idaho Magazine it's you know right across the border of course and she's like they pay like 40 bucks they you know it's a lot lower bar barrier to entry and I um, had done a newspaper internship in Idaho the previous summer and taken like a basically like a day and a half road trip with a buddy of mine where we climbed the highest peak in Idaho and did a couple other things. And I was like, well, maybe that's a story and wrote that story, <clears throat> got paid and was like, Oh, this is, you know, maybe I can do this. And yeah. it's like this sort of double dipping of, I want to go out and do things in the outdoors anyway. And I want to write. And if I can write about it, it's like, wow, I can make double use of this time and learn how to tell stories while I'm out there doing this thing that really lights me up anyway. So it didn't, at first, it was not like a means to, like, there's no way I'm making a living doing this. You know, I worked at a newspaper full-time and I wrote, I think I wrote one freelance piece my first year out of grad school. Um, I I graduated with like $55,000 in student debt from both undergrad and, graduate school and I made 40 dollars on my first magazine piece the first year plus like my salary at the newspaper was like 24 grand and the next year I, I think I made like 150 bucks on freelance pieces got one published and the next year I made like 1200 or 1500 or something like that I was just trying trying to make like a side gig pay and I would god I would do I would do blogs for this company when I was working at another newspaper and it was an outdoor company. And I think they paid me like, uh, I was like between $75 and 120 bucks a month to write like two or three blog blog posts a week. Like, so you can imagine it's like, why don't I just go like work at subway part-time and make sandwiches and make, you know, whatever I could make more money doing that. Um, but yeah, it was not an immediate, um, I did not have immediate success. I wouldn't say financially for sure. Um, 
Well, but what you're describing, it sounds like it, it was snowballing, you know, from 40 to 150 to 1200. That's, that's oh, man. pretty good growth. Yeah. I th- I'm like, I'm visualizing the snowball and I'm thinking of it like cartoons that we see and how fast it builds. And this is yeah. like, Very it's cool. like the <laughs> snowballing on like the, the like most gentle slope of all time. Like it's just so small for so long. And um, yeah, I was, um, yeah. So I got my first freelance piece published in 2004 and I wanted, I was like, really wanted to write for like climbing magazine yeah. or backpacker. And I think the first time I got something published in those, in one of those was 2011. So it was like seven years of pitching and trying to like figure out how to like write the, the stuff they wanted to write. And yeah, it took till 2011. So yeah, that many years of like, that's your snowball, right? Yeah. And then eventually, eventually you figure some stuff out. And um, then shortly after that, really in, in the grand scheme of things, I was able to do it, start doing it full time, which was like 2012. So sort of that, I heard uh, Mahershala Ali talk about being an 18, 18 year overnight success um, yeah. with his role in Moonlight, where he's like, I've been doing this for this long. And finally I'm in the news and people think it's like, Oh, this guy just came out of nowhere. And yeah. that's kind of the way it was for me where I'd be like, had been trying and trying and trying and not necessarily seeing success, but then um, it picked up quite a bit uh, over the span of about a year and a half. Um, yeah. And now you have your own platform semi-rad, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. When, how, how did you start that? That was um, February, 2011. So I had seen a couple friends, including my friend Fitz, who has had a podcast called The Dirtbag Diaries for, gosh, it's like 12 years old now. But he was, you know, the model was um, magazines don't want to publish the stories that I want to write. So I'm just going to create my own platform. Yeah. And he did. And it became that became very big for him very quickly. And I thought, well, maybe I'll do the same thing, because most of the stuff I want to write is like a little too goofy for people. Um Cause that, that was, you know, what I would, I would, it was either they didn't want the ideas or I would just be like, I've never seen anyone write something this um, humorous for this magazine that is about the outdoors. So I won't even try or it'll just get rejected or whatever. So I just was like, you know, I'll just publish my own stuff. I'm going to write one blog a week uh, every Thursday for a year or until something happens, you know, that, that makes me think I should keep doing it. And um, within like three or four months, I had written, I had written a piece like basically um, about how much beer you should buy someone for according to what favor they they did for you in the outdoors. It was like, oh, they they drove to the trailhead. You should buy them a beer. Yeah. All the way up to like, yeah, they they lent you a pair of ice climbing tools, so you should buy them like a twelve pack. To they dug you out of an avalanche, so you just need to buy them beer for the rest of their life you know yeah. um and an editor steve casimiro who had gosh steve's just a legend um you know was one of the founding editors of powder magazine or uh, had written for powdered magazine edited powder magazine founding editor of bike magazine um worked for national geographic adventure he had a website called adventure journal and he said hey i like some of your stuff would you want would it be okay if i like republished it on our site and linked back to you. Um, And that was just a huge leg up for me as well as validation um, because of the taste that he has. And it was just, it was just like, okay, I'm doing something right. And very quickly that turned into a paying thing. And 
by less than a year later, he was like, why don't you write for me full time, which was not a like super, not a living salary, but with that and a few other things, I was able to um, cobble together, you know, a living where I was like, oh, I can, plus I was living in my van at the same time. So it was yeah. like not, not paying rent and um, Man, a little, little cheaper. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Not the, uh, not the aesthetic van life that you've probably seen on Instagram. It was like Chevy Astro van with 150,000 miles on it. Can't stand up in it. No bathroom, no, no stove inside, you know, like it was not, it was not the beautifully photographed van that people are so familiar with now. This is a right. long time ago. So yeah. 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 No, that's, and, and so, okay. At that point you're, you're writing for, you're writing full-time, you're going outdoors full-time. And, and that was, I, your semi-rad was how I, I got acquainted with you. Um, because I remember seeing, uh, you, you were talking about biking across the country, mm-hmm. which I, I want to ask you about that. First off, how do you even plan for a trip that long? Like there's so much unexpected variables. Yeah. I mean, well, so to the, the best, the only reason I was able to do that trip, I was working at a nonprofit at the time. So not making very much money. The only way I was able to do that trip is my friend from high school, Tony, who is a very successful entrepreneur, um, chiropractor and entrepreneur in Chicago. Um, just messaged me and said, Hey, I was thinking about biking across America. Do you want to go with me? And I was like, absolutely. I want to go. And he said, great, I'll pay for the whole thing. I was like, okay, I'm definitely going. (laughs) So what I basically pitched my boss at the time was like, well, we're going to go during like the non-busy season that we have here at this nonprofit. We will raise money for the nonprofit and um, you don't have to pay me for two months. So um, it was a pretty sweet deal for them. Yeah. They saved money that brought in income. They did keep my health insurance going, which is nice. Um, but uh, yeah, so to plan for it, we didn't really, it was just like show up in San Diego on whatever it was, February 1st or whatever, ship your bike. We'll have our bikes put together at this bike shop and we'll just pack and take off and we'll see how far we make it the first day. And we'll kind of go from there. And <clears throat> Tony had a lot more going on than I did at the time, like a pretty young business um, that he was in charge of a lot of things and still had to like be in touch with people on the road and, um, you know, answer questions and take phone calls and reply to emails and stuff. He, he had, the, that was the first iPhone I'd ever seen was Tony's at that time. And I was like, wow, you can email with that thing. That's amazing. Oh, wow. Um, this is 2010. Yeah. Um, so he had a lot more pressure on him and I was kind of just like, it was so great because I was able to shut off and just be in the, in doing what I was doing. I didn't have to keep up anything. I, I kept a blog that I updated for us every day of the trip, except for like two or three when we just didn't have Wi-Fi. but Tony's seven feet tall does not love to camp. So he was like, I'm just paying for a hotel every time we can, we can get one. So we didn't camp. I think we camped four nights the whole time out of 49 days yeah and he can move a bicycle pretty quickly and we hammered and you know looking back on it a decade later we both have in discussions have said yeah we probably could have taken more time to do it and it would have been more fun but you don't think the time yeah it was like i think we averaged 60 miles a day 
um, with the fully loaded bike. So your average pedal speed is like pedaling speed is like 11 miles an hour, maybe. So some days were, you know, some days we'd only do like 40 miles because it was just like convenient or snowing or whatever. Um, and some days, I think at one of the days we did like 103 miles and there were a lot of 80, 90 mile days. So you're just like eight hours on a bicycle and you sort of, um, I tried to get some time on a bicycle. I was living in Denver at the time and tried to train a little bit, but when you leave in February, it's pretty, you know, it's not like you, we, had, we both had, he had bought me a trainer to, to use in my living room and try to get out as much as possible. But the reality of it is you cannot really train for a bike tour that much. It's like, okay, what am I going to do? Put whatever it was, 30 pounds of gear on my bike and then go ride around the neighborhood and yeah. ride around town. So you, your body learns how to do it um, while you're doing it. I feel like it's probably, I feel like a lot of people who do like the Appalachian trail probably have the same sort of thing where they start out and they're like, wow, this pack is really heavy. I'm getting blisters here, here, and here, and uh, I'm not quite in shape for it. And, and then, you know, two months into it, they're like not getting blisters anymore. I've trimmed a bunch of stuff out of my backpack and I'm moving like 25 miles a day or, or whatever it is people do, you know, you just doing the thing is the training, I guess. Mm. So, um, but yeah, but hands down, one of the best trips of my life. I've, I've been really lucky to take a month or more off of work twice in my life. And that was one of the experiences and man, it's, I would love to, I, I question whether or not Tony and I would do it again and I would love to, but I also think sometimes I just want to be young and, and be back doing it with him back in 2010 and, yeah. um, you know, having that, having the, the world be the way it was and the, us the way we were and all that, you know, so that when you yeah. said you, you, so you had two times in your life where you were able to take off a month or more of work. Mm -hmm. um, I want to ask you about the other one, but just the fact that I think that's a very common experience and probably a lot of people don't even have two times in their life they can point to where they took a month off or more. Oh, I, yeah, and I would never expect that. Like I, I grew up in Iowa, which is a very practical place to live. And um, you don't meet people who are like, oh yeah. And then I hiked the Appalachian trail over six months, you know, yeah. in the middle of my career, you know, it just doesn't happen. It's like, we sort of take care of our stuff. You know, you like, you get a job, you provide, you, you know, you save money, you like, you do the smart things. And I, I sort of rebelled against that at first. And then I've ended up realizing that my rebellion was really just a procrastination of some of those things, you know, where you're like, okay, now, now I'll try to buy a house, you know, um, cause that's smart when I'm, you know, 10 years after or 15 years after people I went to college with, uh, bought houses, you know, so I'll become an adult just later. Well, but um, is that the smart thing though? Because I think a lot of people get sucked into that trap of just, you know, Oh, I, yeah. I can't take any time off. Like, yeah, no, I know for sure. It's I, um, I've been extremely fortunate. I don't know if I'd say it's lucky. I think I've sort of designed my life that way um, to be able to, I think about it this way. Like if I, you know, based on what I thought my options were when I was 18, I have lived the most extraordinary life. Like that was a total surprise to me. Um, and I said, if I got like, I'm 42 as of a couple of days ago, and if I got cut off like last year and somebody was like, okay, now you got to go 
you know, take that job um, in your hometown, two weeks of vacation a year till you're 65, I would be like, okay, that's, that's fair. You know, like I, it would average out to being a really incredible life still because of all the stuff I've gotten to do. Um, but do I have much of a 401k? No. So it's going to be, you're like sort of making one choice or the other, unless you nail that New York times bestselling book or whatever, you know? So it's um, who knows? Maybe. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah. Fingers crossed, man. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I don't know. So it's, it's like, yeah. Do you, do you put all your eggs in the basket of like, I'll do that when I, when I'm retired or whatever, I I'm not, who knows? Nobody knows the right answer and you're going to live life wondering if you did the right thing either way. And but maybe pretty sure you did do the right thing no matter what, um, according to psychology, psychological studies I've read. So, um, yeah, who knows? I don't know. I've had many times where I'm like, homeownership is a total scam. This is bullshit. Like, I can't believe I'm spending, you know, four more hours on this, like, like hanging gutters. Like this is not a good use. I'm not making the world a better place doing this shit, you know? Um, so, but there's nice things about it too. So I don't know nothing, nothing's black or white, good or bad, you know? And that's, you know, it's interesting that, that you, you have that attitude because I would assume if you didn't, I mean, yeah, like, okay, maybe you would have a house sooner or a larger 401k, but you might not have done the, the biking trip. Like your, your friend, Tony, who, who had that opportunity for him, that's not most working people, you know? So he, he is not most working people either. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. I, and then, okay. So what was the other time that you took over a month off? I got, I got invited on a Grand Canyon raft trip um, in 2013 by another friend, um, Boris. So yeah, 28 days in the Grand Canyon with no, no cell phone service. Um, awesome. I, I had always, I had zero whitewater rafting experience. I'd done like one two day trip at one point. And uh, I had met people or had friends who had done that Grand Canyon raft trip like three or four times. And I just thought, why would you do the same exact trip like multiple times? You've already seen it. And I went down for 28 days and I I absolutely 100% get why people go down there like three, four, seven, eight times uh, for that trip. It's, it's just incredible. I describe it as the, the best camping trip in America, maybe the world, you know? Um, so special place. You didn't have any white water rafting experience? No, uh, I had gone on one overnight trip with a friend and this was like, you know, you're not, you're not rowing, you know, you end up rowing. Um, and I learned quite a bit, but not, not enough to, I could not take a boat through most of the, I, I wouldn't, yeah, I could not take a boat through most of the rapids in the Grand Canyon. I could do some of the easy ones. And especially with someone who's really experienced coaching me as we're going through them, like uh, move a little left and go a little right. But um, I learned, learned a ton that trip, um, which was cool, but you're more like you could do one of those trips and literally just sit on a raft the whole time and be like, I'm not touching an oar. Uh, I will help cook, you know, or whatever, but I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to pilot one of these boats, which is, you know, totally still a great way to see it, you know? So yeah, I wouldn't say you have to have experience. It probably helps to like 
be okay camping for four straight weeks, you know, with no shower. But how, how fast does that water get moving? Um, boy, that's a good question. Um, you, you don't have to put like a speed on it, but is it, are, are, were there points where you're going through it going like, I don't know, I don't know about this, it might flip. It's very stair-steppy, I guess, is how I think people would describe it. So there's like long sections of calm water and then, gosh, I want to say there's like a few hundred named rapids. So, and those that are, it's really big water. Um, it the averages, I believe something around 10 to 12,000 cubic feet per second, I believe, because it's all controlled by the Glen Canyon Dam. So it's released, it's released, I think it's released in the morning. So this huge rush of water goes through the canyon every day and then it's shut off again, basically. So um, typically it's around, I think, 10 or 12,000 cubic feet per second. And it's a big river. Um, so it's a lot, it's, it's pretty rowdy. It has its own rating system, right? Um, instead of class one through six, it's like one through 10. Um, and yeah, it's a, you know, the, a lot of the people I was on the trip with were veteran raft guides who'd spent seasons guiding on rivers and had, it was their first time in the Grand Canyon. They were definitely respectful of it going, okay, this could be a big deal. I'm sort of nervous about this. So, yeah. um, but yeah, it's, that's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and that, that just, it puts into like these long sort of, um, feats of, I, I don't know if you would call them endurance. Cause the bike riding thing, you're going eight hours a day. That's endurance. The rafting, there's an element of endurance there. And then the ultimate test, it seems, at least to me, are these ultra marathons where you did a hundred miles of running like that. That is, that is so absurd that the original story of a guy running a marathon, like 26.2 miles, he ran it and then died immediately. Yes. <laughs> immediately 100% fatality rate. Yep. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Well, and also I think like a lot of people, if you're unfamiliar with ultra running, you don't realize how much of it is actually, even the people who win mountain ultra marathons are walking a, a little bit of the course, you know, it could be only like half mile, but most people, especially if it's steep, you know, are hiking the uphills and running the downhills and the flats and um, people who finish middle to the back of the pack, like myself, we're walking quite a bit of it, you know, like you don't, you know, the, the ultras I've done have had been between like 16 and 18,000 or 16,000 and like 24,000 feet of elevation gain over a hundred miles. So it's like, it's a lot, you know, it's like climbing the Grand Teton, like three or four times, you know, from the, from the Valley floor. So you're not running up, you, you would never finish, you know? So, um, and I've had discussions with friends who are fast about like, yeah, but I don't even know if we're doing the same sport, you know, like you're running this and you're moving so quickly that you finish in 19, 20 hours. I'm out there for like 32, you know, <laughs> like the sun you're you're in bed sometimes before the sun's even come up on the second day and i'm still like two in the afternoon just like grinding it out so yeah it's totally absurd but i think um there's certain type of people who have that curiosity of can kit like who are these people doing this and could i possibly be one of them because nobody like pops out of the womb and is like 
I'm going to, you know, this person was meant to run a hundred miles, you know, it's yeah. so ridiculous. Um, but then you start, you start realizing that normal people do do it. And especially when you show up at the races and you look around, you're like, these people don't like, we could be a softball team, you know, getting together after work. A lot of these people don't look like, including myself. I'm like, Oh, you're a runner, huh? You know, like looking in the mirror and yeah, it's not, it's just this subgroup of people who all have the same screw loose who are just like, yeah, I think I might want to try it, you know? And, and they dig deep and they find out something about themselves. Um, same thing with people who run marathons, you know, like I ran the New York city marathon with 53,000 other people in 2019. And it's yeah. like, you know, not everybody there looks like an Olympic athlete. You know, if you watch the Olympics, sure. You think running is like this extremely fast thing, but not for tons of people. It's like 10 minute miles, 11 minute miles, you know, we're just out there doing it because it seems like, well, it's, it's the most efficient way to be able to eat pizza, um, you know, <laughs> to burn the calories that you get through eating pizza. So, um, it takes a lot, much longer time riding a bicycle to burn all those calories. So that's why I do it. But yeah, it's absurd. I agree with you, but it's also super fun in a way of just like, um, it's not like an ability or a skill or talent. It's just this thing that you develop through showing up. And, and it's so cool for me to go out there and be like, I think I'm just going to put together like a 40 mile loop or a 50 mile loop and just go do that by myself and have X amount of calories and a headlamp and a rain jacket and, you know, a little water filter and, and just go all day, you know? Um, and it's cool. And you just, you just move at your own pace and be like, it's such a rewarding thing you know, for me. And it may be a time in your life as well. Like it came along at a time for me where, everything in life has become so distracting um social media feeds our behavior around phones and stuff like that and to have one place where you're like okay i'm shutting this off and i'm just gonna go for like two to 18 hours and and just like not look at anything not answer emails and just it's really refreshing you know i'm not sure if i would have done it if it was in the 1990s you know you, you weren't listening to music or anything like that during the the run no i don't i like i feel like so when i went on that bike ride across the country with with tony he had at the time of like a blue was bluetooth even a thing then i don't know he had a speaker for his um for his ipod yeah. so he would listen to music and i just did the math in my head going geez we're gonna be out here for like 50 to 60 days, eight hours a day. I'm like, there's literally no playlist long enough. And this is before, I think it was before Spotify and things like that. So it's not like you were tuning into a radio station on your, it was like, I own these. And he had a pretty oh, yeah. small, he had a pretty small music collection. Mine was more like tens of thousands of songs. Cause I've obsessively collected music my entire life. But I was like, there's no way I'm going to like any of this music when I get back. And I do not want to ruin that for myself. Mm. I had, I had trained for a marathon in 2005, 2006. And I remember listening to, I had my girlfriend at the time had a MP3 player that she loaned me. And I was listening to like Fela Kuti while I was doing this long run and just hating the shit out of the run. Just like, Oh God. Like, and I was like, this experience is going to make me hate Fela Kuti. Um, so 
I'm going to stop listening to music. And so it's, it's more like preservation of my love of music, but it's also like, um, I just like not having noise in one, like having one sacred area of my life, you know? Um, because where, what's another situation where you don't take your phone out? It's like, yeah, you have smaller ones like, Oh, I'm not taking my phone out the dinner table or like, um, you know, at the movie theater, things like that, but you don't have these, I don't go a whole day without looking at my phone ever, unless I'm running. And so it's cool to have that. And plus it's, yeah, now I don't hate my music because I've listened to it for hours and hours and hours on end and through these horrible moments. But a lot of people, I think Scott Jurek says that music is as good as ibuprofen uh, when running. So a lot of different approaches. I just, I just can't. Um, I love to just be out there in my own shit for like whatever, however many hours I'm doing it. No, I I respect that. I mean, it's what is interesting is that when I would, cause I, I haven't run an ultra marathon, but I did run a couple marathons. And one of the things that kind of, um, got to me was just the monotony of you're spending hours of running and, you might be going along a track, whatever it becomes monotonous. Um, Mm. and that's why like, I, I know I do. And a lot of other people I know would listen to like podcasts while they're running or something like that. Um, but when you're running for like, you're doing an ultra marathon, how do you get past the monotony? Like, do you just find a groove? And you know, like in my hometown, there's a factory that made like, padlocks and like tractor door handles and uh, other pieces of machinery. And I worked there in two different departments over like summer break and winter break. And I worked with these people who like, yeah, one of them was a, a job where I just ran like a machine press where I just like punched parts out of this thing. And it was repetitive motion for two hours. Then you took a 15 minute break, two more hours. You took 30 minutes for lunch four more, two more hours, 15 minute break, two more hours, you went, went home and the machine never stopped. You just had to wait for the next person to show up, you know, and, or your coworker would take over for you for 15 minutes and, you know, while, while you were on your break or whatever, but it was just this, I worked with these people, the assembly line, especially where it was like these groups of ladies who would just crush out this work, you know, it was just like, could put these padlocks together in like 30 seconds. And I, it would take me like, 90 seconds and I'm like oh you know like you just feel like you have no dexterity but they just work man you know and nobody was like this job sucks or like um you know they just worked and they didn't complain and they just they just crushed out that stuff and it's the type of thing we don't think of is like you don't see an inspirational story about somebody who just does that job you know day in and day out for 35 years or whatever and then retires but it's like look, man, it's just, we're just here. We're just digging holes. We're just making stuff. And like, they didn't, I don't remember hearing complaining, you know, about, about the work itself. Maybe if the soda machine was out of like, whatever, you know, or the, the vending machines were out of chips or something like that. Somebody would complain, but you have this capacity to do these things. And sure. You can look to like athletes for inspiration for those things. But I kind of think about people who do those jobs and they're just like, nah, man, this is what I do for work. I I do this. And it's like, I don't mentally, I can handle it, you know? So yeah, yeah, it's only, you know, what's the saying? If you're bored, you're boring. 
And like, I spend a lot of that time thinking about things to write, um, especially when training, you know, I will have my phone with me on airplane mode. And if I think of an idea for some drawing that I'm going to do or some story I'm going to write, I literally will stop and walk and just type as fast as I can. And sometimes I can actually read the notes when I get back. And sometimes I'm like, what the hell were you talking about? Um, but it's idea generation. And then also it's just like, you know, we did this for years and years and years, you know, through evolution, we weren't like, geez, I need to listen to something or I need to watch something or I need to like play, you know, some game on my phone or whatever. We, we just were pretty chill. And it's like to go back to it, you can, your brain can handle it, you know? Um, but to me, it's just another way of sort of learning mental toughness. You know, it's like, well, I can handle it. I have to be able to handle it. You know, sometimes you, what you don't want to do is do the math of like, gosh, if I was faster, I'd be done by now, you know? Yeah. Um, or like, boy, if I just run six minute miles instead of nine minute miles, this wouldn't, you know, take, take as long, um, which is awful. <clears throat> but I, I did a, an ultra marathon in North Carolina a couple of years ago. And I think it was like the 65 mile aid station or 70 or something like that. Um, there's only about 75 people in this race. So I went a solid couple hours without seeing people in the dark, you know, in the middle of the night and just going by myself, trying not to get cold and just like going to those places. Um, but I came into the aid station, the guy checking me in was like, Oh, what's your number. And I was like, whatever, 52 or whatever. And I go, how far am I off the lead? You know, knowing full well that I was like, I don't, I was, just, it was just a joke. And he goes, well, they just, you know, the, the winner just finished. So I don't think you're going to, I don't think you're going to win. It was just like high five. Thanks. Thanks for meeting me halfway on that joke, you know? <laughs> um, but to think of people being so far ahead of you because they're moving so fast. Um, this is a terrible, terrible place to go in your head for sure. I, I like that imagery of the, the old ladies building padlocks and, and that being a more accessible form of inspiration to most people than these, like these gods of athletes you see on Instagram where most mm. people are not ever going to be, uh, you know, LeBron James or the rock. Like, yeah, it's, I guess it's inspiring to see that that's possible, but for most people, life is, is doing what, you know, building padlocks and then <laughs> retiring at 65. And if you can yeah. find inspiration in that, then, I mean, you can find inspiration anywhere. Yeah. I mean, I just compare it to, I did a talk a couple of years ago in, in the UK about ultra running. A large part of it was about how I was digging holes to build a fence in my yard. And I didn't want to go buy a post hole digger and we ended up using a trowel at the bottom, which is just like this, it's so stupid. Like it's like triples the work probably, you know? Um, but all this stuff is just like digging a hole. You can't like, you can't just be like, oh, I'm just going to dig for till I get tired and bored because you'll quit right away. And it's going to take you like a month to dig that hole. So instead you just get in there you do it. It's done, you know, but it's all, it's all digging holes. You know, it's like, it's about that fun most of the time too, you know, like yeah. running movies are so hard to make because <clears throat> it's like the, you know, you can have shots of a really, 
talented athlete running, but it doesn't carry a film for more than like, I mean, how much of that shit do you want to watch? It's cool. Yeah, great. That's really exciting. But like, if there's no other story there, you know, it doesn't, doesn't go very far and nobody wants to watch, you know, you don't see those, <clears throat> those moments of tedium, those moments, those hours of tedium that people go through, you know, yeah. it works well in book format, but like for our attention spans, you know, you don't want to, you don't want to live stream somebody's ultra marathon run. It's just going to no. take, take forever, <laughs> yeah. you know? Um, yeah. They're not going to be showing that on ESPN anytime soon. No. Yeah. And that's the, you know, we're, I think about baseball games and, <clears throat> you know, baseball is, it's boring as shit in long stretches, yeah. but anything can happen at any time. Right. And like American attention span doesn't really, I think that's one of the reasons baseball has become less popular is because people are just like, Oh, baseball is so boring. And if you go to a game now, as opposed to 20 years ago, it's like, we have to have something going on like every half inning on the jumbotron. We have to have a contest that's going on or like these um, videos where it's like, three um garbage trucks racing in this artificial thing that people basically quote unquote bet on in the stands and cheer for their favorite garbage truck because our sponsor is waste management or whatever but they have these things that just keep happening every half inning i'm like man we don't need to we don't have to do this stuff you know it's supposed to be it's supposed to be pretty chill game and but we're trying to keep people interested and i'm like man lowest common denominator stuff so to me it's kind of sad but um and there may there may be no going back well, it is kind of a race to the bottom because I can understand as a business, their perspective of saying, listen, people's attention spans are weakening. So therefore we got to make sure that we adjust. But as you adjust collectively, that weakens attention spans. Yes, for sure. Exactly. I think about, uh, I don't know if you listen to the podcast dissect at all. Um, I've, I've heard I f- it before. Yeah. Forgot. I forgot. Uh, Cole Kushner is the guy's name who, who did it, but he basically describes the inspiration for it where he was sick of just interacting with things for like one second and tapping like or dislike or whatever um, on Instagram and whatever. And he was like, I want to take a deep dive into a work of art. And he spent, I think that first season of dissect is like 18 hours of podcasting. And I think he wrote like well over a hundred pages of content about one album about Kendrick Lamar's to pimp a butterfly. And I think how inspirational that is. And nobody's paying this guy either. He's just like, I just love this album so much. I want to dig into it and like have an experience with this album. And of course it's become a job for him, which is great. Uh, But yeah, we, it's so hard, you know, because the social media we use is like this algorithm driven thing where it's like, you have to post every day in order to like grow your following and interact with people. And it's like, what it wants you to do is be on it all the time, like typing things and clicking things and whatever. And I'm like, God, I just can't, I'm so worn out with this shit you know? Um, So to think about things in like a longer form um, and taking more time to do it and requiring your audience to take more time to hang on and, and read it um, is amazing. Or it's a, it's a thing I'd like to do more of, I guess, but you're also just like, am I screwing myself by, I, I, don't, I don't think so. I mean, the most popular podcast in the world is probably the Joe Rogan podcast and it's regularly runs to like three hours. You know, that's, <laughs> that is not something that is minimal attention span that would require you to go through the whole thing, you know? 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> you, you see what I'm saying though? Like people, yeah. people are willing to put in the time, you know, whether or not you listen to that particular podcast, people will, people do listen to it. You know, they'll listen for three hours to something. Do we know they're finishing it though? What's that? Do we know they're finishing all those Joe Rogan episodes? They might not be, but some people. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. I, um, I think that's another sign that we're like, I think a lot of times with interview podcasts, we just want to be, feel like we're part of a conversation because we're not having conversations anymore. Yeah. We're like, wow, look at this guy who actually gets together and talks to people and asks questions. And we're like, you know, maybe we don't do that in our daily lives, but we got time to like listen to people having conversations on our commute or whatever, or while we're painting a fence or something. So, um, yeah, I, I would argue that the utility of a three hour conversation is pretty marginal. Like, I don't think it's that because I'm just like, wow, man. Uh, and at that, with the point, like Joe Rogan, his following, you know, it's just like, how much of this is just hubris, you know, like you could edit half of this shit out and be like, make a punchy, make a better product. But I don't know. I don't listen to it. Um, so I can't say, but, um, but yeah, sometimes I'm like, you know, like hour, hour and a half is pretty, you know, maximum length that we want to listen. No, to. I, I, I agree. And it's interesting that you said the, um, uh, just the fact that, uh, not having conversations in our, in our everyday lives and being able to mm-hmm. listen in on other people having conversations. And, and not only that, but the kinds of conversations that we do have, uh, especially as you talked about earlier, where work dominates our life. You know, I, I know for a fact that there are a lot of these conversations that we're having right now, and this is not a particularly risque conversation, but I would never talk to a coworker and be, you know, oh, so tell, tell me about how uh, you recovered from addiction and have, have put your life on a different path. It oh. would immediately shut down, you know. One of the coolest experiences I've had, well, two, two or three now, I guess. But um, early on, when I, was, I was doing a podcast episode for um, the Dirtbag Diaries. And a chunk of it was I needed to interview my dad. And, you know, you don't um, with friends and family, you often don't have that dynamic, you know, like you're saying, you would never ask a coworker that, but it gave me this opportunity to just straight up ask my dad questions. And it was one of the coolest things I've ever done because my dad actually, I heard him like rustling papers around and I was like, Hey, what are you doing? I'm like recording. Like, um, I can hear you like shuffling papers around. He's like, Oh, I I wrote down some notes. And I'm like, Oh, you wrote like like a page of notes. He's like, Oh yeah, I got like three or four pages here. I'm like, no shit. You know? So it was this, um, it created this thing that neither my dad or I would have ever done on like, you know, we're not just going to be like, go for a Sunday drive and talk about this stuff. But when you have the excuse to interview someone, it makes it such a great uh, experience, you know? And I've, <clears throat> I actually enjoy having friends on our podcasts and like, you know, we interviewed my friend Mike last Friday I met up with him for coffee yesterday to walk around outside and two completely different conversations, you know, cause you can straight up just go, well, what do you think about this? How do you approach this? And it, it doesn't make it more important, but it makes it completely different, you know? And I've, I've gotten to interview my mom as well in the following years, just for fun. Just like sometimes like, yeah, maybe we'll put this in the film. Maybe not, you know, but yeah, it's cool to dig into people's backgrounds and, and other things like that. that creates a completely different dynamic. So yeah, I, I hear you. 
Yeah. I mean, that's one of, I think the peculiar features of modern life where, you know, like when you're growing up, you have to set like playtime where like, okay, let's, let's go like after school, we'll make a day and we'll arrange it with our parents to go and, you know, play in someone's yard or whatever, or nowadays be like playing video games or whatever. Um, but back in, you know, our, our ancestral times, we would be, there would no be, there would not be a prearranged time and space to have playtime. It would just occur spontaneously. And I think it's important to recognize, as you've just said, that um, whether or not we're comfortable with that aspect of modern life, we do have to adjust. We're like making a time for conversation. Like, okay, we're yeah. going to set an intention for this. Like, we're not just yeah. going to ramble, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and some structure to it as opposed to just like, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's so interesting that that's the dynamic between friends or family or whatever, but it's all built on, you would never start doing that the first time you hang out with someone. So it's like creates this um, precedent that you move forward with. And yeah, I've been trying to become a better question asker the last decade of my life to like, friends and family and it's become i wouldn't even say i'm that good at it you know i'm just trying trying more so it's like it's working for you so far i mean <laughs> uh, i i would like i would like to be better at it for sure because it, it makes you feel like you're not a journalist for one thing but uh it also it's just such a weird dynamic of i think i really honestly learned to tell stories in bars where it would just be you're sitting on a bar stool next to two or three people and nobody's going, yeah, but what do you think about this political issue? It's like, we were just like, someone tells this story. And then the person over here is like, oh, that reminds me of the time my friend Bob and I did this. And then the person's, and then you're like, oh yeah, I have a story that kind of goes and it just moves in this circle. And nobody's, nobody's asking questions like, tell me about a time in your childhood when, you know, <laughs> you've, you know, um, so I think I'm fighting that dynamic as well, for sure interesting that's yeah so we're and there are there are more things i want to ask you but as you mentioned we are we are peeping on about an hour hour and 15 minutes here so i I want to um there are two two final questions i I wanted to ask you um and one of them i was gonna ask you before um but we, we just we went on a tangent which is great um the it was about recovering from addiction and going into like outdoorsy sort of, you know, climbing is a risky activity. Right. Mm. And there is something, um, uh, do you feel like there's a connection there at all? Cause I, I have met other outdoorsy people who were, um, you know, who are sober now, but it seems like they're, they're kind of, I don't want to say chasing thrills, but it's almost like this has become, like a feature of their personality had to be tapped into. And rather than tapping into it via drugs, it's being tapped into via climbing. Yeah. Um, I don't know that that was the primary motivator for me. I think from, I think even when I was just like partying, I really was just wanted to find a way to live that led to, it was just like an interesting life, you know, where it was sort of adventure um, in whatever way you would view like bar hopping and getting arrested and stuff like that as adventure. Um, it's really irresponsible and stupid. And, you know, compared to the, compared to my previous life, it, yeah, rock climbing, not that dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but um, climbing was more, I think it was like just the imagery of 
being in the mountains as a, as a small person, um, but figuring out ways to move over that terrain, survive and actually be comfortable in it was sort of an aesthetic that I was really in love with. Um, the like thrill seeking part, I would say, I, I would say I enjoyed having done it. I don't think I enjoyed the doing of it so much because I was so, <clears throat> I did not become a good climber before I started pushing my limits and going way past my limits. So I spent a lot of time being completely terrified. Yeah. Um, so there was a lot of adrenaline um, and things like that. And I think because of that, it wasn't that fun, especially near the end um, <clears throat> that I, I just was like um, scared all the time. And it didn't, didn't, wasn't that fun for me. So yeah, I wouldn't say I was directly replacing like alcohol with adrenaline, but I'm sure, I'm sure there's some, some transfer there. I, uh, when I think about it now and I, I've written this, I think before somewhere where it was like, um, you know, ultra running is all the pain and suffering of mountaineering and climbing without the constant fear of death yeah. because there's like death is usually not that, um, people don't die that often in ultra marathons, you know, in climbing though, you're like, you are one, one knot or one missed clip away sometimes from like falling to your death. So you're always conscious of it. And, you know, I can't think of the number of lives that have been tragically ended because of like one little mistake that someone was like, Oh, I thought they were going to repel and they thought I was going to lower them. And they, you know, yeah, they, we just miscommunicated and they just fell hundred feet or somebody who like didn't tie knots at the end of a rappel rope or whatever, you know, or um, things like that, which are these tiny little mistakes that cost people their lives. So you don't have, you don't have those high stakes in ultra running and um, people do die for sure um, because of things uh, because of other things, but it's so much less, um, less common. I would just say like, you're probably not going to die. You're probably just going to feel like you're going to die for <laughs> several hours. That, um, the point about adventure. Um, Cause I, and I don't know if I was trying to say like you substituted alcohol for adrenaline, but there is, oh, okay. I, I think um, there is, I, that makes sense that there's a connection where the adventure is seeking. And I think a lot of, um, especially young men look at people like a Hunter Thompson as this wild sort of adventure. Oh, totally. And the thing is, is it's not as adventurous as it sounds like by the end of his life, Hunter Thompson couldn't fly in a plane somewhere. Cause he needed like a constant supply of cocaine. Like his, yeah, I, I think he had a really awful life the last decade or so, but yeah, he was, he was an early hero of mine for sure. Yeah. Um, I have a feather from one of his peacocks somewhere in here. A friend got for me. Oh, that's wild. Um, but I don't think he was pleasant to be around. And I think there was, he would have to spend hours of, you know, like putting things in his system before he was like, felt like he could function. And by that time it'd be like 11 o'clock at night. And yeah, no, but the early stuff is like, I feel like there's probably so many young writers, well, or writers of my age group who were like, I want to be just like that when I, when I become a writer and nobody has, you think all it takes is partying, but you don't realize how much writing like the craft was in, in that work. Um, I think he was an absolute disaster to work with, but the end product oftentimes came out really well. So, and less so later in his career, I think. But, I mean, yes and no. Cause I, I, 
I like I remember watching this documentary where they talk about sort of like the turn in his career <laughs> where they go to um, the Rumble in the Jungle. It's Muhammad Ali against Joe Frazier, and they're mm-hmm. in Zaire, and he winds up getting so hammered that he just like stays at the pool and laying in the pool. Fight. Yep, and it's yep. like. Dude, that's one of the all-time like great fights that you could have gone and seen. But clearly, at a certain point, this adventurousness handicaps the very thing it's supposed to be fueling. For like, sure, there is a there's some moment in Fear and Loathing in the Campaign Trail '72 where he like catches he like basically gets a scoop, I think, of something while by being at the right urinal next to the right person in the men's restroom, you know, after doing everything wrong for whoever knows how long. Um, so yeah, I mean, imagine missing that fight. Wow. I know. Yeah. So I, I think, I think you made the the right decision. If <laughs> maybe a little bit less romantic, you know, yeah. it, I think it paid off. Um, yeah. Well, so what, um, before I let you go, I, I want to ask, what do you have any advice to, to young people who, who are kind of like, I'm, I'm in awe of the kind of life where someone gets to go on these kinds of adventures and make it uh, their livelihood. Like what um, warnings, advice, <laughs> you know? Yeah, I'm not, you, you are not seeing the invisible amount of like, the invisible yeah. part here is how much time I spend answering emails and worrying about like, you know, there's just so much I, I could feel, I could talk to you for an hour about all the, all the bullshit yeah. um, that I, that I create for myself and have to do, but um, yeah, I, yeah, I'd be, be wary of anybody whose life looks very exciting to you. Um, Fair enough. But also <laughs> you think about it, like, I mean, I feel like I was behind for so long know and um i mean how old are you 25 yeah yeah i mean like i'm 42 man i've like had years to stack this stuff up so when you crunch it all down with like and go hey you've done this this and this and this this it's like yeah well that represents what like six months of 17 years and like all these micro little things and yeah um, it's not it's not like this constant stream of doing awesome, fun things. Um, not to shit on it all. I've had a fucking amazing time. I'm not like, I'm, yeah. I'm not saying that, but there have been years where I have been like, I can't believe I said yes to this thing too. Um, great. I'm going to get to go on this adventure, but I don't know how I'm going to pay my rent because I have no time in the office and um, would be like, do we have enough time to go back to the storage unit to get stuff for a raft trip when I just got back from, you know, X, Y, Z thing. And um I think, yeah, I don't know. I guess it depends what you want to do for, for life for a living or whatever. But um, as far as what I know about you, you're doing what I would advise you to do, which is try, you know, like you, you landed some big names on this podcast and like, no, it's crazy. Right. And yeah. I think, I think the thing I run into, I see a lot with, um, I teach a couple writing, uh, writing workshop every summer and, Um, I think the thing that I have, the thing that puts me on the side of being the instructor versus the student, um, and we're all people in my classes are from age 20, probably 22, 23 to like in their sixties. And the only thing that makes me different and gives me the amount of experience to talk about these things with people is that I've been trying, like putting stuff out there and like 
you know, trying to get published and trying to have my writing find an audience and my drawings or whatever and like evolving and being like, well, maybe I could try to make a film. Maybe I could try this and try that. And um, you, people know you because of four or five hits, right? Yeah. Like your five best episodes of your podcast or the film you made that got way more views than anything else you'd made, but they don't like think of you. You don't hear too much about the, what about those three other films you made that didn't really go on the film festival thing. And they only have like 10,000 views on YouTube or whatever. And it's like, nobody, nobody knows about those. So um, the thing that I think I would encourage people to do is try, try things, you know, and like most of the time people are so busy now that when you put something out and it doesn't get the reaction you intended, the reaction is not, um, it's not negative. You know, it's not like, Oh, Duncan, I can't believe you tried to do this podcast. It's a piece of shit. It's like, they mostly just, they mostly just ignore it. So you're, you're either going to have a positive effect or it's going to get ignored, you know, which is fine. You know, it's like maybe five people listen to it. Maybe 5,000 people listen to it or whatever. Um, So creatively, I think that's what, what most people's obstacle is, is they don't sit down and try to, and try to actually make it and try to put out a product of some sort. Um, Products are really bad, a really bad word for what I'm trying to say, but yeah, too, too consumerist, but I I get what you're saying. Like, yeah, it's a piece of work. It's a piece of art, you know? Um, So one of the, one of my favorite cartoonists to follow is Liana Fink, who's a, she makes stuff for the New Yorker for sure. But I think the majority of her following on Instagram, which is like in the hundreds of thousands is these just sketches that she does that are like, if you, you know, if you were a really, if you really wanted to negatively say something about it, you'd be like, Oh, my kid could draw that. But because of the drawing, but she's just sketching it out. And it's like, the things are so true on such a, and they come up so often, you know, she, she's like, yeah, I'll upload this boom, 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 you know, and, and it's a massive following and things are really, you know, you don't look at them and think, Oh, she spent like six weeks on this drawing, you think, oh, she probably spent like 15 minutes putting this little sketch together. And, but it really hits home. So, and you think of Liana as the, I don't know, 10 or 20 cartoons that she's drawn that really spoke to you. And then there's probably a thousand that you just scrolled right by or looked at it and were like, I don't get it and moved on, you know? So but she's putting stuff out there constantly. So yeah, that's, that's a long winded answer to No, sure. no, I, that's it's perfect. That speaking of cartoonists, that reminds me of the South park guys who said that they, their advice to film students was to just make as much as possible because they, yeah. they, their, their little short animation that launched South park. They didn't think it was going to go anywhere. They thought they had way better stuff than that, but they just made it and put it out and went on to making more stuff. Like right something eventually hit you know? and there's so many stories like that you know where it was like i didn't think this was going to be the hit I, th- I thought this was going to be the hit but this other thing took off and yeah you don't know um there's a great book called adventures in the screen trade by william goldman who's the guy who wrote like butch cassidy and sundance kid and uh, all the president's men the screenplays and yeah. uh, i don't remember the exact passage but he's like what makes a hit movie nobody knows literally no one you can ask anybody in any studio they have no idea um i think seth godin pointed out recently that that was that made sense pre-marvel 
uh, comic book movies, basically, but sure. or yeah. pre superhero movies. But but yeah, other than that, people don't know. They have no idea. So they're just trying. They're like, well, we'll see. See what happens, you know. And one of them takes off enough that they can afford to make five or six other movies that don't do as well, and that's business. So I don't know. Well, uh, listen, Brendan, uh, thank you for your time. Uh, I really enjoyed our chat. Is there anything you want to plug before you, you, you go? Um, not really. Um, I have, I have a new book about running coming out March 16th. I'm not sure when this is going to, going to air, but, um, it's called, I hate running and you can too. Um, okay. it's, I think it's available for pre-order everywhere you buy books. And, um, that's about, that's about the most pluggable thing I have right now. Unless people just want to mail money to my house in which case, they just, <laughs> you know sure, why not yeah that's, that's the plug venmo here's my venmo um but no i'm good yeah thanks cool all right um well brennan thanks for your time and uh have a great rest of your day yeah thank you cool I'll talk to you soon talk to you bye-bye thank you to brendan leonard and thanks for listening to dunk tank i'm duncan gammy see you next time